All right, I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. I'll read verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You may be seated. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word, and we pray now that as we open your word, that you would do what only you can to cause us to receive it as your truth and not, uh, not simply the word of man. Lord, open our ears, our eyes, our hearts, and our minds. Uh, may we be shaped and molded through your word. May it be your truth that is spoken in nothing but, and may you be glorified in all that is said here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again with our series, and we come now to part two of our sermon on children in the mission of God. Now, last week, we opened the scriptures to see how God views children and saw that they are consistently viewed as a blessing. As we saw from Psalm 127, blessed is the man whose quiver is filled with arrows. In other words, blessed is the man whose house is full of children, whose van is full of children. Children are a blessing. We also saw that children play a central role in God's mission. If Christians over generations would be faithful to be fruitful and multiply and then raise their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, we would see the kingdom grow literally exponentially. We also saw that every passage that specifically addresses the discipleship of children and youth is actually addressed to their parents. We drew from this that God has therefore assigned parents to be the primary disciplers of their children. Parents have a weighty duty before God. And last Sunday, we built the case that this is a weighty and essential duty, but then we sort of left things hanging. We didn't get into the practical side of things. So for our sermon this morning, we turn to the question of how. How do we raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? What are some of the practical everyday things that we ought to do in order to see our children grow into godly adults? And so uh, for those taking notes, we have two major headings and we'll have several subheadings. So the two major headings will be discipline and education. Uh, so let's begin with discipline. It's interesting that it's not typically thought of as an element of discipleship, but if you read books on discipleship, on how to make disciples, you won't probably find a section on discipline. Um, but we actually see from Scripture that discipline is an essential component of discipleship. And even those English words, disciple and discipline, share a common root. Right? A disciple is one uh, who undergoes a, a, a program of discipline. 
A disciple is one who is taught and instructed, and in a Christian context, taught and instructed as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. To receive discipline then, biblically, is the corrective arm of discipleship. Done rightly, discipline aims at teaching, correcting, and training. Discipline should therefore be viewed as an essential component of the discipleship of our children. Now, there are two types of discipline we'll look at this morning. The first is formative discipline, or what we might call preventative discipline. While it is an essential component, which we'll unpack in a moment, there is more to discipline than simply corrective discipline. Again, if we remember that our goal is not simply a mindless, heartless compliance, but rather to bring up our children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, we will remember that perhaps the largest part of discipline is not merely disciplining our children when they, when they do wrong, but the larger part of it is teaching, guiding, and directing children in how to do right. Joel Beakey writes, If we bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord with God's blessing, the negative forms of discipline, right, punishment of sin, will be needed less and less as we exercise positive forms of discipline. So first point under this heading for how to have positive discipline, this formative or preventative discipline. Number one, have clear rules. Ephesians 6 verse 4 began with the instruction, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but rather bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now few things will provoke or exasperate children like being held accountable for unclear rules or rules which change depending on the emotional state of their parents. Now, while we will all struggle to be perfectly consistent in this regard, we must strive after consistency. We must communicate as clearly as possible to our children exactly what is expected of them, both in general and also in specific situations. And if we fail to do this, we will confuse and frustrate our children. You know, imagine playing a sport where the referee just kept changing the rules. You would quickly get frustrated and you would lose the motivation to even try to follow these seemingly arbitrary and shifting rules. Now we must not make our homes like this for our children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but give them clear and consistent rules to follow. Next point, actively train them. Don't let the only conversations that you have about right behavior come during or after corrective discipline. If there's something in particular you want your child to learn, take some time to practice it with them when things are going well. For example, if your child struggles to greet people the way you'd like them to, practice with them at home. You know, teach your sons, look, here's how you shake someone's hand. Stand up straight, look them in the eye, smile, say hello, and give their hand a firm shake. Practice these things at home and reward them when they do well. And then the next time you're in public, you can say, hey, remember what we practiced. Right? Your kid might even be excited uh, to put it into practice. 
And of course, there are thousands of little things like this. Train your children positively. Teach them what they need to know. Praise and reward them when they do well. Next point, seek to create a garden of yes. God put Adam and Eve in a garden with many, many yeses and only one no. God, in general, does not seek to crush his children by surrounding them with temptation on every side. And we should not do that to our children either. Romans 13 verse 14 says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now we as disciples are commanded to recognize our own weaknesses and not intentionally put ourselves in temptation's path. If you know that something will be a temptation for you, wisdom says avoid that thing. Think of the words of Christ. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. That's how uh, committed we ought to be. He, he overstates things there. He uses hyperbole to show how committed we should be to avoiding temptation. Uh, we must do the same with our children. Remember, uh, if, if there are parents here, you'd, I don't need to remind you, they have received the sinful nature uh, that you handed down to them. Uh, they, uh, and their sinful hearts will find plenty of temptations. Uh, we do not need to pile on. And so do not make it a regular practice of intentionally surrounding your children with unnecessary temptations, right? Make no provision for their flesh. Uh, make your home, as far as it is practical, a garden of yes, right? To put the valuables out of reach, put locks on the doors they're not supposed to open, save them from trouble, and put temptation out of reach uh, wherever it's feasible. Now, this can apply to the instructions that you give as well, uh, we can all picture the late night, uh, you get home and your toddler is emotional. In a moment like that, knowing your kid, you can predict how they might respond to an instruction. And so to avoid making provision for their flesh, instead of giving an instruction that you know will lead to an argument that will end in corrective discipline, you really have the opportunity to bypass the whole situation and just go pick them up and bring them where they need to go. Now, while this doesn't mean that you'll never give another instruction to your child, uh, that you'll never have to train them to do something they don't want to do, uh, what we should have in our minds is that we are not intentionally putting our children in situations where we know they will face temptation. Uh, they will find plenty of temptations as it is, and so help them in their sanctification. Make no provision for their flesh. All right, let's move on to corrective discipline. Uh, Proverbs 13, verse 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Now, as controversial as the practice is today, if we take Scripture seriously, we will see that God requires us to spank our children. Right? Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. 
If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Proverbs 29 verse 15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29 17, Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Now, my guess is for some of us here, these passages are maybe not the easiest to hear. And so we need to remember, as always, regardless of what our secular culture happens to be claiming at any given moment, we as Christians must have our views shaped and formed by the word of the true and living God. And so any time that we find ourselves wincing, grimacing, blushing, or cringing over something in the scriptures, something God says, commands, or does, we recognize that is time for a heart check. Is scripture not the word of the true and living God? As such, is it not authoritative in all that it says, instructs, teaches, and commands? And so if I come across something in scripture that I disagree with, who is the one who needs to change? Me. As God has shown us in his word, our hearts are sinful. Sin has tainted our thoughts, our emotions, our reasoning. The world, the flesh, and the devil work together to cause us to question the word of God at every point. And given everything that is at stake with the discipleship of children, it really should not surprise us at all to find that the teaching of scripture on this vital issue has come under heavy attack. You may have heard of the movement of uh, quote-unquote gentle parenting. Well, gentle parenting is the movement that avoids discipline in virtually every form. And I hope what, we see, what we've seen from Scripture here is that, according to Scripture, gentle parenting isn't. Gentle parenting isn't. According to scripture, gentle parenting, uh, refusing to discipline, is not a form of love, but is in fact hatred. Now, if that sounds like I'm being overly provocative, I would simply remind you of the text. What did, what did we read? He who spares the rod, what? Hates his son. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So we see, according to scripture, that to avoid discipline, to avoid discipline, is actually not to be gentle with your child, but it is to give them over to the folly of their own hearts. You know, you are not avoiding harshness by refusing to discipline. You are simply giving in to a sentimental form of hatred. You are simply being gentle with their sin which according to scripture is being truly harsh and hateful toward the child. You are refusing to give them the wisdom that scripture says the rod and reproof bring. You are leaving them to themselves. Proverbs says they will bring shame to you. So we must always ask, will we take God at his word? Will we trust him when he tells us that folly is bound up in the heart of a child and that it's the rod that drives it far from him? 
Brothers and sisters, God is our maker. He is all-wise, all-knowing, and he is good. We can and must trust his instructions. Now, with all of this being said, we should acknowledge that it is very possible to lose your balance on this point. Now, I don't doubt at all that there have been parents who claimed to be simply administering biblical discipline, who were in fact being simply mean-spirited, you know, beating their children with the approval of their consciences. Now, this is, of course, wicked. And so with this in mind, we need to be careful as we contend for what the Bible says about this topic. So then how ought we to discipline our children? How are we to avoid these possible pitfalls? Well, I have a few points. Firstly, we must discipline in God's name. Joel Beakey writes, Punishment can go wrong if we don't keep in mind that we are acting in God's stead. As parents, we often think of our children as belonging to us, so we are in charge. Indeed, we are in charge, but only as servants appointed by the master. That is a critical distinction. If we lose sight of it, our tendency will be to discipline children based on our emotions rather than God's commandments. Close quote. Your children are not your property. Lord willing, they will in fact be fellow heirs with you in eternity, in glory. They, like you and everything else in this universe, belong to God. You have been given a temporary charge over them. In the face of eternity, a very, very small period of time. You've been given a temporary charge over them, and as the steward of God, he has put the rod in your hand and commanded you to use it well. We are, in fact, not free to simply do whatever seems right to us with our children. This is because you and your children are not your own, but you belong, body and soul, and life and death, to God. This will guide us in discipline. As God's representatives, we will be diligent to establish the facts of every case. You know, we see the emphasis come through again and again in God's law that we must make sure that the innocents are never unjustly punished. You, know, you see that in God's law with the emphasis on uh, every matter being established by two or three witnesses. Um, justice uh, must be a concern for us that we would not unjustly uh, punish an innocent child. And so we must always establish the facts of a case. We do not simply spank first and ask questions later. As God's stewards, we must follow his standards. Next, this will also keep us from indifference in the other direction in discipline. A diligent steward with a charge to keep will obey his master's instructions. We see then that our obligation is not merely to discipline, when we feel personally bothered, you know, when we're annoyed or offended, but rather we are to discipline when our child violates God's law. The indifferent parent may not care that his child was disobedient. In that moment, the hassle of discipline doesn't seem worth it to the parent. 
But if he understands that he is simply the steward given an important task by his master, he will then be diligent in his duty. As God's stewards given the temporary charge over our children, we are to enforce God's law in his way. Next point, we must discipline in love. We must remember that the goal of our discipline is to see the child formed in godliness and then restored into fellowship. It is because we love our children and do not hate them that we do not spare the rod. It is because we love our children and are obeying God that we are disciplining them. And so, discipline must never be done in anger. The rod of correction must never come without love. Joel Beakey writes that when this happens, we then spank out of anger, whether piping hot or icy cold, and our children feel nothing but physical pain and the equally bitter sting of our wrath. They see that we are not really grieved when we spank them, and they do not feel that we are doing it in God's name. They know that we are just punishing them because we are angry, close quote. Now, if anger is a problem that you face when disciplining, give yourself the necessary time to cool off. Right, send your child into the next room and then pray. Lord, quench my anger. Fill me with love for this child and let me discipline him with compassion and the desire to do him good. Only after you have cooled off are you qualified to serve as God's steward in this manner. And then let the discipline be the discipline. Do not give your children the double punishment of the spanking combined with your anger for the rest of the day. Now, one of the natural strategies of our flesh uh, in get, trying to get what we want from other people is that we have a tendency to want to blackmail people through our anger, through our bitterness. Somebody does something we don't like, and then even if they apologize, our flesh wants to continue punishing them by remaining bitter and cold toward them so that they will then fully learn their lesson and not offend us again. Well, I think the same temptation can come when it comes to disciplining our children. Even after the discipline has been administered, we can be tempted to try to continue punishing our child by our anger. You know, we have this feeling that, you know, the discipline wasn't enough. We need to exact more from them. And so we continue to punish them by our bitterness, through our anger. Brothers and sisters, we must keep in mind that the purpose of discipline is not to bring about cosmic justice for the sin. If it feels like the spanking is letting the child off too easily, we need to remember this fact. Our discipline is not about the administration of cosmic justice. You know, you're right in one sense. They are getting off easy. For the wages of sin is not a spanking, but the wages of sin is death. 
God will handle cosmic justice. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, declares the Lord. And we can rest assured that the punishment for every sin ever committed will either have been borne by Christ on the cross or will be poured out on the sinner in hell through eternity. In either case, God does not need us to add our anger as an additional punishment for sin. This is true not only of our children, but of anyone we would hold bitterness toward. The anger and bitterness you cling to is accomplishing nothing as far as biblical justice is concerned, and this bitterness is simply poison to your soul and acid to your relationships. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put far away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Discipline is not and must not be a parent taking revenge on their child. Our assignment is teaching and correction, not the execution of justice. We must have the child's best interest at heart. We must discipline in love and be aiming for reconciliation. Remembering that our goal is for all of our children to be in fellowship with us and one another. We must keep this in mind when we discipline. Let the punishment be the punishment. And after discipline is administered, don't make your child wonder if you're angry at them. Make it clear that they are loved, and after the issue has been dealt with, let it remain in the past. You know, in our home, after receiving discipline, the offending child will always be required to apologize to whomever they sinned against, and we will end with a hug. Right? The break in fellowship must always be restored. And that brings us to our next sub-point. Discipline with an aim to encourage repentance. As we've been arguing, discipline is an essential part of discipleship. We are aiming at more than merely correcting the faulty behaviors in our children. And so in the years that we will be disciplining our children, we have a tremendous opportunity to teach them how a Christian responds when they sin. Bodhi Bauckham writes, If all I give my children is limits and rules, they will do what I tell them as long as I am around. But once they leave my home, they will live in accordance with their worldview, not my rules. Remember that you are trying to form a disciple, uh, not merely um, an obedient drone. And so help your children understand that they have sinned against God and against other people, and then teach them how a Christian goes about repenting of sin. As I mentioned, with very little ones, this simply looks like requiring an apology and possibly a hug. But as children get older, we have the opportunity to explain and to teach what true repentance looks like. We can explain that Christians are not people who never sin, but they are people who do not make sin a lifestyle. 
we do not sweep sin under the rug. But rather, we seek as far as we can to make things right. A Christian confesses his sin to God and to other people and seeks their forgiveness, seeks to be restored to fellowship. Teach and model this for your children. All right, now for the sake of time, that's all that we'll say about discipline. And that brings us to our second major heading for this morning, and that is education. Now here's another one that Christians uh, probably don't typically think of as an element in discipleship. But we must understand that education is discipleship. Ephesians 4, 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, the Greek words there, bring them up in the paideia and nuthesia of the Lord. Uh, paideia, translated here as discipline, is defined by uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon as the whole training and education of a child, which relates to the cultivation of mind and morals, and employs for this purpose both commands and admonitions, as well as reproof and punishment. Nuthesia, instruction or admonition, is to warn someone through teaching, admonish, counsel, instruct. And so commentator Charles Ellicott says that in this phrase, the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we have the two elements of education. Expositor's commentary writes, Paideia in classical Greek means education, the whole instruction and training of youth, including the training of the body. So notice firstly that the command to bring up our children in the paideia of the Lord involves education. This is essential for us to understand. According to scripture, it is parents with a special responsibility placed upon fathers as the heads of their homes. Parents have been given the responsibility for the education of their children. Now that is something we must grasp. In our day, most of us have grown up with government schools as the norm. And as a result, we tend to think of the responsibility for education as something which properly belongs to the state. You know, it's been well said that if the government began teaching people to tie their shoes, it would only take one generation and we would believe that people could not learn to tie their shoes without the help of the government. And I think that is much the way that we view education today. But if you go to the scriptures, you will not find anywhere that God commands civil magistrates to take on the duty of education. Rather, we see that it is parents who are assigned with bringing up their children in the paideia of the Lord. Education is an important subset of this responsibility. But what you will find if you look into the word paideia is that it is actually a much broader term than what we simply think of as education. Paideia is bigger, broader, deeper, and more developed than what we would normally think of as education. Here's a quote uh, from Doug Wilson. Paideia represented to the ancient Greeks an enormous ideological task. They were concerned with nothing less than the shaping of the ideal man. 
who would be able to take his place in the ideal culture. Further, the point of Paideia was to bring that culture about, close quote. So notice that Paideia then is therefore about worldview formation, right? It is the shaping of the person into the ideal citizen. Wilson again, in the ancient world, the Paideia was all-encompassing and involved nothing less than the full enculturation of the future citizen. He was enculturated when he was instructed in the classroom, but the process was also occurring when he walked along the streets of his city to and from school. It included walking by the temple for the gods of his people. That too was part of the process, close quote. Now, one thing that Christians must grasp if we are going to keep our kids and stop losing them to the secularists is that our enemies understand very well the importance of paideia. They have a clear and well-articulated vision for the kind of citizen they are aiming to produce through the education that they provide. You may have seen a while back an article published by Harvard Magazine which was calling for a presumptive ban on homeschooling. And one of the reasons given was, quote, it's important that children grow up exposed to community values, social values, democratic values, ideas about non-discrimination, and tolerance of other people's viewpoints. I hope you can decipher that language, but the reason given for banning homeschooling is the fear that homeschooled children, especially those in homes driven by conservative Christian beliefs, which were singled out in the article, are the fear that these children will not be exposed to community values, to social values, democratic values, non-discrimination, and tolerance. Now, I hope we can all see the irony in suggesting a ban on homeschooling in the name of tolerance. But I digress. But notice what this is. It is the fear that homeschooled children uh, being raised in conservative Christian homes will not be enculturated in the way that this author thinks they should. This is about paideia, producing a certain type of citizen, one with very particular values, right? Non-discrimination, tolerance. I hope we can understand this code. This is the worldview of secular humanism. We must reckon with the fact that government schools are not at all interested in bringing up children in the paideia of the Lord. In fact, on nearly every significant worldview issue, government schools actively seek to undermine the Christian worldview. Now, I will grant that it has not always been this way in this nation. When I was in elementary school, we began every day with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, from grades three to, uh, three to five, all of my teachers uh, sang in my church's quartet. And I really believe they were genuine Christians. But even when I was in school, things were shifting, right? We were taught evolution in science class. When teaching us vitally important worldview issues, like what we are, what is a human being, where we came from, 
What is the nature of ultimate reality? If you are teaching Darwinism, then the answer is we are an accident. You're the product of time plus matter plus chance. We came from space dust. We are the result of a process that didn't have us in mind in a universe indifferent to our existence. Right? Specks of dust in cosmic sand. And even back then in my high school days, we were already being taught elements of critical race theory. Right? It was implied that we bear guilt uh, for actions that other people committed before we were born simply because we happen to share similar pigment in our skin. And things have only gotten worse since then. Christian teachers who are left in government schools are now functionally muzzled. They risk getting fired if they are too open about their faith. And so many, if not most, will simply go along to get along. If you were to open the Manitoba Teacher Society website, one of the banners that greets you is an advertisement for a conference they are hosting titled Strengthening the Status Queer a leadership symposium for and by queer people. You can find another tab on their website providing LGBTQ lesson plans for teen, middle, and yes, early years. On many classrooms, even in our community, you will find the sticker declaring this classroom to be a safe space for LGBTQ+. Now the message there is clear. Christians of all people know what it is to hold something sacred, right? The message is, in this space, you shall not blaspheme our gods. These things, which your God declares abominable, are protected categories, and they are to be celebrated in this classroom as a moral good. That territory has been marked off. A flag has been planted and it is not the flag of Christ's kingdom. Nor is it the paideia of the Lord that children are being brought up in through their time in government schools. Rather, it is the paideia of Marx and Darwin. It is the paideia of atheism and nihilism. Brothers and sisters, make no mistake, there is no such thing as a neutral education. There is always a paideia. As Jesus said, the disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Luke 6, verse 40. Bodhi Bauckham writes, This raises one of the most important questions that Christian parents will face concerning the discipleship of their children. Whom will your children resemble at the end of their formal education? The fact is, there are worldview dimensions present in every school subject, and a child's worldview is constantly forming whether we realize it or not. Worldviews, in some ways, are caught as much as they are taught. Now, what this means is that a parent trying to do worldview damage control at the end of the school day is likely to get a particular answer from their kid, especially if you've ever asked a teenager, what did you learn today? And the kid says, nothing. And yet, that child heard the teacher refer to Johnny as Sally, because he is now female. Your son saw the male teacher wearing a dress to school and had to refer to him as Mix instead of Mr. 
Your child was saturated and was hearing again and again certain stories, narratives that shape us. And one of the big stories of progressivism is basically the same thing, the same story from the Enlightenment, the idea that we are now advancing as a species by throwing off old traditions like religion, and that through reason, we can now advance into our utopian future. Now, the stories of a worldview play out in thousands of different ways, and they frequently shape our thinking without our even realizing it. These stories are simply flowing from the culture we are in, from the environment we are in. These are narratives we, we uh, absorb, assumptions we form without realizing it. All of these things are what form a worldview. This is all part of acculturation. It is the paideia of secular humanism. Brothers and sisters, we have the duty of bringing up our children in the paideia of the Lord. As Paul Washer once said, your children will go to public school and they will be trained for somewhere around 15,000 hours in ungodly secular thought. And then they'll go to Sunday school and they'll color a picture of Noah's Ark. And you think that's going to stand against the lies they are being told. Close quote. Unless God grants mercy, it looks very much like our children and grandchildren are going to be living in a world and a nation that is very hostile to their faith. And so we need to be asking ourselves, what are the things we can do now that will give them the tools to not merely survive, but to thrive in a nation that is hostile to Christianity? If paideia involves the full enculturation of a disciple, this has some enormous implications. Right? If paideia is enculturation, this means that we must therefore form a Christian culture. It is not enough for us to take the worldview and the assumptions of pagan secularism and then add a few Christian sprinkles. If we would be faithful to raise our children in the paideia of the Lord, this means that Christians have the assignment of building uniquely Christian culture in which our children can then be enculturated. You know, as the tagline for our church website says, all of Christ for all of life. Colossians 1:15, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Brothers and sisters, Christ must be preeminent. Everything that exists belongs to him, was created through him, and is intended for him. Is there any area of life in which a preeminent Christ has nothing to say? Vern Poitras writes, 
In the modern West, many cultural leaders wish to keep religion private. They say, keep it to yourself or keep it inside your family. Cultural leaders want most of life to be secular, a realm where religion makes no difference. They say, in effect, keep your Jesus out of business, work, education, science, technology, government, politics, entertainment, media, and the arts. But if Jesus is, in fact, Lord of all, he is Lord of all those areas of life. He is already there in his divine authority and power and presence. You cannot keep him out. And trying to keep him out is already a violation of his claims to lordship. Or as Abraham Kuyper put it, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. A Christian culture is one in which Christian assumptions and beliefs have informed every area of life. Culture, after all, is simply religion externalized. Culture is downstream from religion. Right? You go to Saudi Arabia and you will find a certain type of culture. Right? You will find Muslim culture. You go to India and you will see Hindu or Buddhist culture. Um, the religious beliefs, assumptions, and presuppositions of a people will find expression in everything that they do. Architecture, law, arts, education, medicine, government, cuisine, etc. Our calling to bring up our children in the paideia of the Lord requires us to live out and to create Christian culture. And a central building block for the formation of culture is education. Doug Wilson again. While the paideia is not limited to formal education, we certainly see that formal education is right at the heart of paideia. It does not constitute the whole of the thing, but it does occupy an influential and controlling position. Education is discipleship. Indoctrination is inescapable. It is not a question of whether indoctrination will be occurring, but rather which doctrines will be taught. There will be a paideia. The question for us, will we be faithful and make it the paideia of the Lord? Zvodi Bakum famously said, we cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. We need a firm commitment to a robustly Christian education. Not merely sheltering our children from the lies of the world, but rather equipping them to face them. Now, don't think bubble wrap, think boot camp. Whatever form it takes, be it homeschooling, private Christian school, a Christian online school, homeschool co-ops, or whatever, let us be diligently bringing up our children in the paideia of the Lord. And if your children are in government schools, then be all the more aware 
of the importance of countering the worldview they are saturating in. Counter that influence with a rival influence. You know, get your children around Christians with a solid Christian worldview. Let them soak in a different culture. Bring them to Sunday school. Lead them in family worship. Bring them to singing nights. Let them fellowship with Christians and hear us all singing praises to God. Bring them up in a Christian culture. Let us think toward the future, not only for our children, but for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Let us aim at multi-generational faithfulness. Let us build institutions that will teach the faith to the coming generations. Let us create Christian culture, seeking to have every area of life informed by our faith and therefore aiming to glorify Christ. Let us counter the narratives of secularism with the glorious true story that God is telling. Let our children know and see the glory of God's redemptive work for his fallen creation. Let them see and know where they fit into that story. Children, do you know your place in this story? Let them see the joy of vibrant Christian living, passionate disciples living out fully that which we proclaim and believe. Let us build and then enjoy robustly Christian culture. Let us also rest in the knowledge that despite our failures, the ultimate future of the kingdom and our children is not in our hands, but in the hands of our sovereign Lord who can and does save for himself a people of, out of any culture, religion, and worldview. Let us serve the Lord in humble faith and bring up our children in the paideia of the Lord. Amen.